took some tears off my eyes and I, and I put it on his forehead. Listening to Let Your Voice Be Heard. It's a logical fallacy, and I, I know that, but, you know, as always, and maybe the rest of the panel can tell you, I play a bit of the uh, devil's advocate because I am the lone black Republican up here. He just made a fool out of himself. I mean, you can look at Dennis Rodman and think he's making a fool out of himself. You know Barack Obama, what he was like, anti-war, government... Uh, the... Boy, that escalated quickly. I gotta jump into a rally to save a hospital here in Brooklyn in just a minute. I stopped working on my dissertation the second my grandmother died. I am a blazing liberal who can uh-huh. have a Republican-leaning ideology to give me enough beers. You know, I gotta get you that Illuminati thesaurus. Once you get that, you're gonna be able to speak in the same language I can speak. Now, a white person with a criminal record is more likely to get a job than a black person without one. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep! The point of financial stability and economic justice is that you're free from confines of society and you have more freedom and to make your own choices. Just in general, people who have money tend to have more access to resources to be able to use in their defense versus people that don't have money. So you see a lot of, you know, lower, in, and that's really a class issue, and, and race does come into play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Riding through the six mm-hmm. with my woe. Oh, hey, Selena. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Hello, And Selena. welcome to Let Your Voice Be Heard. Selena's back? I'm yes, back. back. Unfortunately, yes. I had so much fun in Paris and No Belgium. one cares, Selena. Can I finish my statement? Fine. I was speaking straight French. And it was magical. <laughs> it was everything, guys. I went to Paris once. Yes. And my sister and I, we... um. We didn't know that the cur- like it was just like this little Parisian hotel, not mm-hmm. like some big Sheridan or something. And we didn't know that like the curfew, there was like a hotel curfew that like the doors closed at a certain hour and you were going to be locked out. So like we went out to this club and we were like partying and drinking all night to like four in the morning. What's and your woes? We went and got French fries, real French fries, nice. not those freedom fries. Yeah, <laughs> um, at like three thirty four in the morning, and then we went back to the hotel, and we were locked out. And oh, like wow. I had to like bang down this door, keep banging until finally we woke up a security guard oh, and he let us in. So your white privilege opened the door, huh? <laughs> yeah, so. exactly what it is. Glad you made it. American privilege. Speaking of making it, if me and my boys had did that, we would have got shot. Um. So we all made it here this morning. And we would like to thank you, the listeners, for joining us here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. For the fact oh, that Stanley FM. wasn't shot on thank his way here. Thank you. W-H-C-R, by the, police. the voice of Harlem. Right. Just barely. Right. So, um, I was in haircut. Yeah, I did get a haircut. Selena is so upset with us right now, Alyssa. <laughs> no, probably just you. She's, she's going to beat us after the show. I'm really not, though. So, think? who are you? Why don't you tell us who you are? Thank you. Okay. So, if you... Haven't figured it out already. My name is Selena Hill, and on Twitter and Instagram, it's Miss Selena Hill. You can follow me there, and you can see all the pictures and videos I took while I was overseas for the first time and having a time of my life. I'm, I'm sure Miss Deborah is going right through her Instagram timeline trying to find <laughs> pictures of you. I'm, that's exactly. I mean, what she's if doing. you guys want to see the the structure, Eiffel Tower, and Belgium, and everything like that, then you know definitely check it out. No, yeah, go go see it in person. That's yeah. the best way to see. Because Brother Omar me. is about to go follow follow you on Twitter, right, Selena? Uh, hey, why not? Yeah, okay. Why not? So, yes, we are here on Let Your Voice Be Heard, and I am Stanley Fritz, your favorite engineer. I am never missing except for when I'm not here, which only happens once every couple of weeks or months. <laughs> when he drinks too much. Yes, right. yes, yes. Speaking of drinking, oh, my God. Well, you know what? Anyways, you can follow me on Twitter at Stan Fritz. I've become really popular in the last day and a half. Doing what? Um, I've been doing my regular tweeting, but for some reason, some guy just want to call me the N-word. <laughs> Again? That yeah. happens to you like once a week. Yeah. It, like Once you start tweeting about certain things, certain spam accounts just attack you. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram, straight flexing. 
Uh, my handle on there is Dark Skin Swindle, but I'm considering changing it to Born Again Ratchet. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I can't, Miss Stanley. Um, <coughs> I guess that leaves me, yeah? Uh, my name is Alyssa Fuchs, and you can find me on Facebook uh, at the Politically Preposterous fan page or on Twitter at Alyssa Fuchs with an I. I'm pretty easy to find. Definitely. Just look me up in the New York State Attorney Directory. I'm going to do that, Alyssa. Just go to Google, type in New York State Attorney Lookup. Right. And when you get to the page. That's cool. Type in Alyssa Fuchs with an I. And it has and your it, bio and everything? No, it doesn't have my bio, but it will tell you the law firm that I work for and the phone number and like my email address and stuff like that. My bio is up on my law firm's website. If you Google Stanley Fritz, the first thing that pops up is the Hennessy making competition for 2003. <laughs> that the Hennessy baby making place. competition? What? No, just the Hennessy drinking competition. Right, that I'm sure you won in a very. I came in second place proud. in Miami Hennessy White. Any, I can compete. Well, um, so we have a great show lined up for everyone today. We're starting off talking about the crisis in Yemen. As we know, Saudi Arabia has launched airstrikes. You know what I mean? And uh, Egypt and a number of other countries in the Gulf have threatened to um, take action against the Houthis. In what? Yemen, the Houthis, though, that's the rebel group. Oh, that's their name? Yeah, it's the Houthis. It's are so all, easy to renounce that it's funny, right? Are Houthis. all the good terrorist names gone? You have, all <laughs> right. What's Houthis? Boko Haram, Yo, Bo- ISIS. Al-Qaeda. Um, the Cobras. Taliban. Al-Shabaab. Yeah, so the Houthis, are all, they're like, damn it, what are we going to choose? The Houthis. That's like in the Unbreakable Kimmy when they were like, oh, don't wear yellow. There's no gang is out, but they couldn't, they couldn't get any other colors because the good ones are chosen already. So I haven't uh, seen the show. I've heard it's good. But, you know, that's a, that's an interesting conversation. How do terrorist groups choose their name? Right. Well, <laughs> hey, we wouldn't know. And obviously we're saying it in English. It's probably pronounced much differently yeah. in their country. Like Bobby Schmurter support group. That's what it means um, in country. He's still locked up. Yeah. I'm, About a week ago. I do not expect him to get out. But speaking of getting out, we're going to talk about how people can get out of debt later on in the show when we talk about payday loans. And it's not by using them. <laughs> right. We have a very special guest who will join us and talk about this predatory lending practice that is taking advantage of some of the most vulnerable Americans. And then, you know, as they take out this money, they wind up paying almost, well, actually up to 400% in interest rates. And they yep. just drown in this cycle of debt. It's called the trap. No, it's called the debt trap. Or die. No, no, no. Just debt <laughs> trap. Like trap music, debt oh. trap. Trap music, you say? A little bit. Okay, I don't know. Cool. Trap, whatever. So The debt trap. Music. I like that, actually. Me you know, too. Do <laughs> you think people are twerking as they're going bankrupt from not being able to pay their payday loans? Probably not. Yeah, that's No, they probably happen. are. I wouldn't be surprised. No one is twerking during bankruptcy, Selena. That doesn't happen. I, it's know, a good you exercise. You ever think that maybe if companies actually paid people a wage that they could live on, then they wouldn't actually need a payday loan? I think you're being selfish, Alyssa. Well, maybe that would make too much sense. Yeah. Um, so speaking of making sense, Alyssa will make sense for us during the quickie about the Confederate flag license plate debate in Texas. Yeah, so briefly, because I'm going to give you more later, <clears throat> the Sons of Confederate Veterans, uh, which is a group in te- that's in Texas and a bunch of other states, they proposed a specialty license plate. And um, so now there's a debate going on about whether or not when Texas said no to the specialty license plate, the First Amendment, their First Amendment rights were violated. And we're going to talk about more <sighs> about that at the end of the show. Right. So we'll definitely talk about that. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. And guys, if you want to call in, and chime into our conversations, please feel free to do so. The number is 212 650 
And you can tweet us at Be Heard underscore radio. You want you know we were gonna break it up, Stanley. It's supposed to be Be Heard underscore radio. radio. Gucci man. No. So um and use the hashtag Be Heard. So we're going on a quick break. Yes. But when we come back, we're coming back talking about the crisis in Yemen. And we are back. I'm Selena Hill with Stanley Fritz and Alyssa Fuchs, and we are here on Truffle Butter. Let your voice be heard on WHCR 90.3 FM. The voice of Harlem. Yes. And we're starting the show off talking about the chaos and the crisis in Yemen. It's horrible over there. It went from bad to worse to much worse to awful. <laughs> and <Okay>. um, <laughs> I'm just going to give everyone a, a briefing. And then we have a very special special guest on the line who will continue the conversation. will continue the conversation with and will help us get a better understanding of what's going on in Yemen mm-hmm. and why we as cozy privileged Americans should care. Because okay, I don't care right now. Actually. You are you do care and you're going to care even more. So um, the president of Yemen, he actually left his country and he appears to be in Saudi Arabia while rebels as I mentioned earlier called the Houthis um, <laughs> they control the capital city of Yemen Sanaa what Who, who's giving these guys weapons I mean that's a great question Stanley they're backed by Iran they're so uh, they've been uh. trained by Iran and there's also like very complex structure where in which um, the last leader of Yemen was backed by the U.S. and they and the U.S. supplied them with weapons and oh, so this artillery. Is a proxy war, right? So that's why a lot of people have been calling it a proxy war. It's like everyone keeps giving the tea parties of their region guns. <laughs> that, that's what's happening. I mean, yeah, so it's a lot of corruption and a lot of um, sectarian violence and war and regionalist violence and war. So um, just to continue, a lot of the countries, like I mentioned, around Yemen, uh, like Saudi Arabia, they already started bombing the country. And they will and probably will invade it and put some ground troops under there, um, put some troops on the ground there. Um, The Houthi rebel group. They're actually an offshoot from mainstream Shia Islam. And they've been around since the 90s. And they've been having this on and off conflict with with the central Yemi government since 2004. However, um, as I mentioned, the conflict really isn't over just like the religion and the different sects. But it's (laughs) more so because the Houthis fall into the Zadi community. What's that? The Zadi community is another sect of Islam, so it's like the the Shiite. So it's like how Christians have like Baptist, Protestant, right, okay. right. The different sects, right? I didn't know that. Wow. Like it's there's there's sex within the sex. You you sound like you're saying sex. sex. There's sex within sex. Se- no. So is this like Inception sex. for sex? No, <laughs> no. The sect, oh, right? Okay. So, um, so what's happening is with the Houthis, um, they believe that the central government has been repressing them and has not upheld their interests. Even when the government transitioned, um, which was pretty recently, when there was new people put in power, they did not represent their interests or their voices. And, you know, what happens when people feel oppressed, that usually use, uh, leads to an uprising. Um, so basically... It's like the elements of the old regime and the sectarian rebels, they've gained out forces on um, people who are loyal to the government. Oh. And, right. So this is not like a Tea Party version. This is like people who actually have a real, like a legitimate gripe. Um, I would, yes, I would say that. But, I mean, what they're doing is not something that I would support. Well, this is how power is taken. 
Well, I mean, there's a lot of different things going on because you have Sunnis, you have Shiites, you have Houthis, you have Al Qaeda, you have the Saudi, you know, and then you have the Americans and the Saudi Arabians coming in and trying to uh, do what they're doing in there, and that's creating conflict. Like, for example, the Houthis don't get along with the uh, with Al Qaeda, yeah. but the Houthis right. are actually mad that Saudi Arabia and it's and potentially backed by America is bombing Al Qaeda, even though they're moral enemies. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So, like, there's a lot of different things going on in, yeah. in, in the region. And I think a lot of things that even Americans and even smart Americans who understand foreign policy, like myself, don't necessarily understand. George Bush really screwed us up. Like, the reverberations of his screw up just keep on coming. They really do. They just keep on coming. So wow. we're at the point now, again, where Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia has launched their airstrikes. Civilians have already um, started to die. And what's happening is uh, a lot of the people who didn't support the Houthis, they're now either leaning towards them or wanting to fight with them because they see their families and the villages just being bombed because of Saudi Arabia. So, like I said, Houthis are um, allegedly backed by Iran. Mm-hmm. And of course, Suthi, uh, excuse me, Saudi Arabia and Iran um, have been using different people as proxies to just fight all over the Arab region. And yeah. this is like the latest. Meanwhile, we're still in Iraq and we're getting more soldiers put back in Afghanistan and ISIS. All right, go ahead. No, I mean, it, it's pretty disheartening, but I would like to invite our guests on the line. We have Musa Al-Garbi. He is the managing editor for the Southwest Initiative for the Study of Middle East Conflicts, also known as SISMEC, S-I-S-M-E-C. Good morning, Musa. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for um, calling in. I gave a briefing on what's been going on from our understanding, but if you could just relate to us in brief what the events were that led up to this crisis in Yemen. Uh, sure. I mean, it's it's kind of a long story, but I'll, I'll break it down a little bit uh, faster. Uh, so what's interesting is that Prior to the current regime being put in power, Yemen was actually at civil war for more than 30 years between 1962 and 1994. And the, the, the former dictator who was overthrown in 2011, he took power of all of Yemen in 1994. Uh, that would be um, President Saleh. And uh, President Saleh was a Zaidi, um, which is, uh, as, you, as you indicated, is... Um, Religiously, they're an option. They're they're sort of related to Shia Islam, uh, as are the the Houthis. In fact, the Houthi are a Zaidi group. So there's the Shia, and then a subset of the Shia are the Zaidi, and then a subset of the Zaidi are the are the Houthi. So they're a, a group within the the Zaidis. Um, and so the former president was a Zaidi, but nonetheless, um, the Houthi began a, a, an uprising against the central government. As you indicated, um, from uh, beginning in 2004 and then running until about 2010, when they when they had the the last ceasefire, which was just prior to the president being ousted. Now that's an important dynamic because the Houthi then are are resisting the central government, but it's not necessarily for um, religious reasons because the president at the time was from their sect. Um, they were resisting the central government for. Um, political reasons, uh, because they thought the government was corrupt, they thought the government was ineffectual. One thing that they were particularly incensed about, um, as you indicated, was the uh, 
heavy involvement of outside forces in Yemen, like uh, the U.S. drone campaign, which had been going on, which began, uh, you know, shortly after 9/11 in 2002, and ran and continues to run to this day. Um, that drone campaign has been highly destabilizing, as Sisnek pointed out in a number of its works, and that's that's a big problem for a lot of um, Yemenis. Uh, and the, the Houthi were uh, one of the people leading the protests against that. Uh, and then, as the as time went on, the government was less able to provide services for its people. They were getting a lot of aid from places like uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States, but most of that money was being funneled to the military. And so social services and just the the, um, the government itself was gradually deteriorating and being hollowed out. And all of this culminated in um, 2010, 2011, with the massive protests in Yemen, which were um, held to be part of the Arab Spring or the Arab uprisings. And the Houthi played a pivotal role in leading, leading that charge. Um, and so that ultimately ended with... President Saleh agreeing to step down in a U.S. brokered deal with Saudi Arabia. He was given diplomatic immunity for the crimes he committed over the, the 30 or so years he was in power. Because, um, again, before he was in charge of the whole country of Yemen, which started in 1994, he was in control of North Yemen. Um, so he was, he was in power for about um, for about 30 years. And, uh, and so was, but unfortunately, when he was driven from power, um, he was just replaced with his vice president, uh, President Hadi, who's the current president, right. who has also who has also been um, in the upper echelons of the government for um, for years. Musa, and, uh, really quickly, uh-huh. so from my understanding, the former president, um, President Selah, he was actually making deals or with Al Qaeda during his time in the in, during his time and during his reign because. During the Arab Arab Spring, um, a lot of things there was like a there was allegations that he might be removed from power, and a lot of to solidify his power, he wanted the U.S. to back him. So he made backroom deals with Al Qaeda, gave them like a little section, and so that and like try to play it out so that it looked like Al Qaeda would be attacking the central government, so that the U.S. could continue to fund him. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, it's it's true, and it's not unusual. So there's the same dynamic actually happens um, in Pakistan, for instance. Pakistan uh, is a is a military-run um, state, and they rely heavily on, on aid from the United States. Uh, and they get this aid because they're perceived as as a critical ally in the war on terror. So they, um, they also they have um, deals with the Afghan Taliban, basically the Pakistani government does. Uh, in fact, um, the Pakistani, uh, it's a long story, but the Pakistani government and, uh, actually played sort of a pivotal role in helping form the Taliban to drive out the Russians, uh, uh, collaborating with the United States at that time in the 70s. But they continue to have relationships with the Taliban. And so they, um, they also... Uh, Sort of work with the terrorists to to keep this sort of perceived threat uh, at a at a high level, especially when the aid seems to be threatened. You know, magically the terror problem will grow worse, and so the aid will will, will continue to be. Um, so that happens in Pakistan, and and I should add though, in general, a lot of times um, states sort of make Faustian pacts with with uh, really powerful non-state and sub-state actors if they don't have the power to just beat them. 
So in Mexico, for instance, this was one of the problems why the corruption is so bad. It initially began because some of the cartels just owned, um, were just too strong for the government to outright sort of defeat them. And so they made pacts of like basically mutual non-aggression, but then gradually that becomes a, a, a more, um, the tendrils of the cartel sort of increasingly corrupted the government. So rather than just agreeing not to destroy each other, the cartel starts taking over the government. Um, so this this dynamic of government sort of making deals with non-state act- and sub-state actors is just unfortunately not unusual, but mm. Saleh does seem to have, uh, have taken part in that as well. Right, right. Thank you so much for clarifying that and um, giving a breakdown of how the Houthis came into power. But one of the next things I want to ask you before we go on break is how exactly did these rebels become so powerful? I mean, you said that they led the Arab Spring uprising, but how do they go from that to taking over the capital of Yemen and Arden? Um, How how did that happen? Yeah, so this is important to note as well. So there, um, again, so part of the problem is that, well, well, they are a Zaidi. Um, they have a, they're part of a coalition and they have support that's beyond just the Shia. I mean, the Shia are about 40% of Yemen. Um, not all of them are Zaidi and not, not all of the Zaidis are Houthi, as I indicated, but most of the Shia have sort of coalesced behind the, um, the Houthi. So that's about 40% of the country. And then additionally, there's other, um, uh, Sunni groups, uh, political leftists, um, other secular groups that also um, align with the Houthi because they're seen as uh, challenging this. Uh, a lot of people see the current government, the Hadi government, basically as just a continuation of the dictatorship that's been going on for the left. You know, there were supposed to be reforms and transition, and we can talk about this after the break, but both, most of that stuff just hasn't happened, and there isn't really any sign that Hadi is going to be, you know, uh, resigning or stepping down or that meaningful reforms are coming down the road. So there's a lot of discontent. So the Houthi are getting a lot of support within Yemen from a lot of different sectors of society, and that's actually part of the reason why they were able to um, reach so far down. And that's that's actually why they were able to seize the capital city in the first place, basically. is um, the In fact, a lot of the military isn't loyal to Hadi, um, and uh, so they, they allowed them into the capital in much the same way that the uh, uh, Iraqi forces chose not to resist ISIS in Mosul. They just sort of laid down their arms and left. Um, so a very similar situation happened in Sana, which is why the Houthi were able to take the capital in the first place. Mm. Thank you so much, Musa, for that breakdown. We are actually going to go on a quick break, but we'll be right back here on Let Your Voice Be Heard talking about the crisis in Yemen. This is a guided meditation on parenting. Take this time to breathe deeply and close your eyes. Right now, you're completely in control. Unlike the time you and your son played basketball and you attempted to slam dunk. Or when you tried removing those raccoons from the basement. 
Concentrate on the soothing sound of my voice. Release the memory of when you wrestled with that beehive in your son's treehouse. Let go of the time you thought that skunk was a cat, or when you pulled into the garage with your son's bike on top of the car. Deep breaths. Deep breaths. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who don't need perfection. They need you. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. All day, all day, WHCR 90.3 FM New York. How much time you spent at the mall? All day, all day. How many runners do you get on call? And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. All day, all day. Right here on Let... I mean, WHCR 90.3 FM. The voice of Harlem. We have on the line with us Musa Algarbi. He is the managing editor for the Southwest Initiative for the Study of Middle East Conflicts. And he's talking to us about the crisis in Yemen. And, I mean, this chaos that's going on is so deep, deeply rooted in the the history of the country. Um, Of course, the U.S. is tied in there some type of way because we're always going to some other country and causing problems. And, I mean, what's going on there is absolutely horrible. It's like a whole big mess. And I wanted to lead the conversation now to talk about Saudi Arabia, who recently launched airstrikes in Yemen. Um, Before break, we heard a breakdown of how the Houthi rebel, the rebel group in Yemen who took over the capital, Sana, how, why they even came into power, how they came into power, and why they're there. And again, it's rooted in their oppression and the fact that they basically didn't get along with the central government and weren't being heard and represented. And also, um, the former president of Yemen, Yemen, President Shella, who was a U.S.-backed dictator, he also helped to empower al-Qaeda. And now, from my understanding, he switched sides and is working with the Houthi. Mm-hmm. So it's like this whole big thing. And I wanted to ask Musa um, about the other countries who are getting involved, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Um, we already know Saudi Arabia started bombing, started dropping bombs on Yemen. Can you explain to us what that connection is between Saudi Arabia and Egypt and other countries in the Gulf? Yeah. Um, so actually, part of the reason why the bombing campaign has led more people to um, support the Houthi in Yemen is not just because um, people don't like to get bombed by outside powers. That's true, uh, and that's, <laughs> that's that would cause people to support the Houthi more anyway. But um, Saudi Arabia has a long history in Yemen of meddling in Yemeni politics. For instance, in the in the civil war, as I mentioned, the 30-year war between 62 and 94, part of the reason it went on so long is because of Saudi Arabia's constant meddling. Um, what Saudi Arabia is worried about, particularly in, uh, in Yemen right now, is um, a lot of people aren't familiar with this. When they don't think about this when they think of Saudi Arabia. But Saudi Arabia actually has a fairly large Shia population as well, and they're in the south of Saudi Arabia. Now, the Houthi control the north of Yemen, so the, 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 the Shia in Saudi Arabia and the Shia in Yemen are actually um, kind of close to each other. They're, they're separated by uh, the border, you know, but it's not... Um, it's not super robust. So one one of the things that the Saudi are worried about, um, oh, I should add, and the south of Saudi Arabia is where a lot of critical oil assets are. So the, the Shia in Saudi Arabia have no representation in the government. They're oppressed 
uh, as well. Um, and so what Saudi Arabia is really worried about is that their own Shia in the south of their own country would be inspired by the uprising just across the border in North Yemen um, and maybe decide to try to do something themselves, uh, try to seize autonomy or something like this um, with regards to the oil resources in southern uh, Saudi Arabia. So this is why Saudi Arabia considers it such an important threat, is, is it's not so much the, the, the proxy issue with Iran, it's that they're worried for their own um, southern border. Uh, I should add, with regards to Iran, I mean, so Iran supports uh, a lot of Shia groups in the region uh, in a lot of ways, and they probably are supporting the Houthi, but it's just not, it's not clear exactly how or to what extent. Um, again, most of the arms that the Houthi, Houthi got, when they, um, they got over the the previous years of civil war, and then when they stormed the capital, they got a lot more arms. What was interesting is that, again, um, their seizing the capital was relatively bloodless. Uh, people didn't really resist them. Um, so uh, that's that's why they were able to, to do it so easily. But um, but they got a lot more arms at, at that point. So most of their weapons aren't actually coming from Iran. They're, they're, they're from uh, Yemen. But uh, with regards to the coalition of countries bombing other than Saudi Arabia, the other major player is Egypt. And uh, the reason Egypt is taking part in this isn't because of any particular concern that they have about Yemen. It's because uh, after um, the, uh, the current dictator, uh, Fatah al-Sisi, overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt, um, because he was so repressive, because he um, was... Uh, because it was perceived that Egypt was very unstable and tourism dropped in Egypt after the dictators took power. Uh, so Egypt basically didn't have a solvent economy and it was on the verge of collapse. And a lot of countries um, weren't necessarily willing to um, chime in and keep them afloat. And then even the IMF and the World Bank were hesitant to, to loan them stuff. And if they were going to give them loans, it was under the condition that they you know, cut a lot of subsidies or... Um, privatized a lot of their economy, which would have been very unpopular, and so the new dictator didn't want to do that either. So the, the, the country that agreed to prop Egypt up, basically, and prop this dictatorship up is Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is literally single-handedly underwriting the entire Egyptian economy right now. So um, now uh, Egypt is basically paying it forward in Yemen, uh, and um, it, they have one of the most effective fighting forces in the region, uh, so that's that would be um, why they would be the ones to be relied on, for instance, for providing ground troops. What's ironic, I should add, is that during that 30-year civil war I mentioned before, um, that was actually a proxy war. The reason it lasted so long was because that was actually a proxy war uh, between Saudi Arabia and Egypt at the time. Uh, Egypt at the time was run by a secular guy, uh, Nasser. Um, also a dictator, but, you know, um, and uh, he was trying to empower some, uh, uh, this this movement in, 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 the, uh, in the north, and then the Saudis were funding this movement in, uh, in the south. Actually, uh, sorry, switched those two. But, um, so actually it was, basically at that time it was Egypt and Saudi Arabia vying for control of Yemen, and that's, that's what uh, made the civil war last so long. So it's it's kind of strange and ironic now that it's Egypt and Saudi Arabia collaborating to uh, um, to carry out this offensive. 
Thank you so much for that elaborate and detailed um, answer and response, Musa. We're really learning and taking so much in, and I wanted to ask you for a point of clarity because it sounds like what you're saying is we don't know to what degree Iran is backing the Houthi. So my question is, how accurate is it to call the crisis in Yemen a proxy war for um, for Saudi Arabia um, and or versus Iran, or is it that the rebels and al-Qaeda supporters in Yemen are being motivated by their own political agenda? Yeah, I think it's the second one. I mean, the, so the, the idea of a sectarian war or a proxy war, a lot of a lot of people, especially journalists, like to use that because it's just it's an easy narrative. So especially if you only have a little bit of time to talk between the commercial break or something like that, it's something that's very easy to just throw in there and, and it provides some kind of a frame for analyzing. But it's not it's not super accurate. Um, so the uh, I mean, so the Houthi, uh, they were they were taking, they even tried to take part um, in the transition uh, after Saleh was was uh, overthrown. They weren't a uh, big fan of Hadi staying in power. Um, but to, to underscore just how complex the problem in Yemen is, so after um, Hadi took power, there was supposed to be this constitutional committee that was going to get together and, and form a new framework for a new Yemen. And basically, what the conclusion they came to was that they wanted to just dissolve Yemen. Instead of being one state, it was going to be a federation of six states, a loose federation of six states. They just wanted to dissolve Yemen altogether. Um, and uh, that was put on, the, uh, basically the, the kibosh was put on that. So after they passed this constitutional committee for deciding what Yemen should look like, uh, when they were like, actually, we should just break up into six states, they were like, actually... Uh, we're just not going to do what you recommended <laughs> after all. So this was um, so the problem isn't necessarily the Houthi. The problem is that Yemen is a very divided society, and it's been a very divided society for a long time. And basically, they're trying to force um, the international community, U.S., Saudi Arabia, etc., uh, are trying to force the country to be something that it's not, which is some unified entity. Um, and uh, and what's worse is that. They're trying to superimpose this this unity on Yemen that's just not there, and the people who they're having spearhead this single government is this ineffective and unpopular dictatorship. I mean, um, so so again, part of the reason the Houthi have been able to seize so much territory is because they are sort of popularly backed even by people who aren't Shia, and conversely, part of the reason why they're being backed so much is because the government, the actual government, the central government, is very unpopular. It's not effective at providing goods and services. Um, it's seen as being beholden to foreign powers too much. It's uh, it's um, not effective at fighting, uh, you know, at terrorism or providing security for the people. And it continues to be very oppressive, and the reforms haven't really, really um, happened. Yes, and uh, thank you so much for that. If you guys are listening and you have a question or a comment for our guests, you can call in at 212-650-6903. Musa, my name is Alyssa. I'm just jumping in here a second. Um, but uh, you mentioned some things that I wanted to circle back to. One of them is about uh, Hadi, the current president, and how he's sort of been propped up by the U.S. government. A lot of people believe that a lot that, that has to do with um, the fact that he agreed to allow the U.S. to continue their drone strikes against al-Qaeda. Um, and that has also led to the belief that that's sort of the reason why Sunnis and Shiites are actually getting along against that, because they're against Hadi. He's not popular due to the fact that he is in cahoots with the 
the Americans, uh, so to speak. So I guess my question is, is the Americans' involvement in Yemen solely about terrorism and wanting to protect Americans from terrorism? Or is there other counter-narratives going on with respect to, say, oil or other things that I may not be thinking of at the moment? Yeah, so what's unfortunate uh, for Yemen is that they, they, they don't really have any resources. They're very water poor, they're very oil poor. So um, so there's not a lot to be gained from, from Yemen. So um, most of the countries who are interacting with Yemen, Saudi Arabia, the U.S., and most other countries, are mostly um, just concerned about their own security, about trying to contain Yemen. And this is a big problem because they're never really engaging um, with the Yemeni people are trying to make the government in Yemen really function for the people of Yemen. Everyone is sort of involved in Yemen for their own self-serving reasons. And the Yemeni people know that, which is why they resent U.S. involvement, which is why they resent Saudi involvement. Um, it's because they're, it's a transparently exploitative relationship. And the drone strikes are very destabilizing in Yemen, and they have been for a long time. It destroys a lot of infrastructure. It um, undermines a lot of social um, norms and bounds. It prevents the government from being able to uh, exercise authority in a lot of areas which is what allows, ironically, which is what allows al-Qaeda to continue flourishing in Yemen in the first place. Um, so it's a very, uh, yeah, so um, I, I guess I would, I would, I would agree with your, with your initial premise there. And I'm jumping in the conversation too, just sticking to America and the drone strike. So now we have the Houthis who are, kind of, who are more or less taking over Yemen at the time. What happens if they're able to hold on to this power with America's ability to use drone strikes to go after terrorists? Um, yeah. Oh, I should add. Uh, so, you know, one of the reasons why they uh, why uh, as um, that was a very insightful comment that you made at, at the at the start the the previous um, commenter. So. Um, so Saleh was under pre- a lot of pressure for the sake of maintaining legitimacy with his people to sort of scale back the drone program in Yemen. So when he was uh, ultimately replaced as part of that U.S. and Saudi brokered deal, Hadi was um, much more open to even expanding drone operations in Yemen. So that's that's the reason why he's um, so favored currently by the United States. Uh, it's because he's he's so very compliant um, with with the drone program and. Uh, so the question is as to if Hadi is not able to um, sort of be put in power, what, what that would mean for the drone strikes. Uh, unfortunately, what's been happening is the U.S. hasn't stopped the drone strikes. They, they, the State Department even said that despite the government being overthrown, um, they're just going to continue doing what they're doing, even though they're, they're, there's no one on the ground in Yemen who they're coordinating with or, or getting consent from. They're just basically going to keep keep doing what they're doing. USA. Um, USA. <laughs> That's how we roll. We don't ask, <laughs> no. With, with no, you know, degree of knowing how effective the strikes even are in preventing terrorist attacks at home. Science and research is stupid, Alyssa. We blow things up because of America and Jesus. All right. I don't know about the Jesus part, but yeah. Um, Musa, we actually have to wrap this up. But before we let you go, can you briefly tell us why Americans should be paying attention to this unrest in Yemen? And do you think the U.S. should have any involvement in this crisis moving forward? Oh, yo. Yeah. So it's, um, if, the US continue, if the U.S. wants to have um, involvement in Yemen, it needs to be a, a deeper involvement um, 
oriented to solving a lot of their underlying social problems, trying to continue propping up this dictatorship for the sake of stability so you can continue, you know, um, drone operations, is not the sort of involvement that the U.S. should have. Uh, and the drone strikes, I should add, are not very effective at preventing terrorism. SISMEC did a number of uh, important research pieces on this, which are available on the website and, and other media outlets. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I guess so. My, my, the suggestion I would have is that if the U.S. wants to be continued uh, to continue its involvement in Yemen, it needs a, a deeper and a different kind of in, uh, involvement. As far as why the American people should care, they should care because it's um, this continued instability in Yemen, which uh, allows. Uh, groups like al-Qaeda to um, continue to operate. And that's not necessarily a threat, a direct threat to the U.S. Um, the terrorism threat to the United States is dramatically overstated. But it is highly destabilizing for the Middle East and for the people of the Middle East. Um, so, um, I mean, I, I guess it's more of a humanitarian problem than a security problem because the security threat posed by al-Qaeda and even by ISIS is dramatically overstated. Thank you so much, Musa. Please tell our listeners how they can um, find out more about you, your writings, and your commentary on this issue. Sure. So I have my own uh, website, which has my writings from Al Jazeera and other venues at um, fiatsofia.org, F-I-A-T-S-O-P-H-I-A.org. And then um, sysmec.org has... Um, that's the site that I, uh, as you indicated, I'm the managing editor for. So there's some of my writing there and uh, also some, some work from some of my esteemed colleagues. Thank you again, Musa. And I just wanted to wrap up the segment by saying briefly that um, when it, as we see, the Yemen government is riddled in corruption. It's actually been named one of the the tenth most corrupt government in the world, and we see why. But I feel like the victims here, who we didn't get a chance to really talk about, are the civilians who are just in the midst of the uh, in the midst of poverty, corruption, and power, uh, and, and greed as these different leaders try to grab power. Um, And also, I just wanted to make note that as Americans, a lot of times we aren't, you know, we're caught up in our domestic issues and we don't really pay attention. But what happens is this instability in other countries does fuel um, al-Qaeda as every different type of group tries to make a power grab. And then all of a sudden we're wondering why we're dropping bombs on different countries. And uh, we know... And as our guest pointed out, this is counterproductive as well because it also helps and it also turns into people just um, joining those terrorist groups that we're supposed to be fighting. So it is very complex and it is very deep. But I encourage everyone to continue to follow the issue and to stay informed and educated and empowered. And on that note, we are going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're coming back to the news roundup right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. Seriously, we're back here on Let Your Voice Be Heard Radio. If you're listening and you have a comment or a question or a news story that you want to share with us, feel free to give us a call at 212-650-6903. But the tax bracket thing is really an important or, you know, good comment to be made because the last comment that I wanted to make about our previous segment about Yemen, that why does it matter for Americans? It costs us money. When we are spending taxpayer money on military for drone strikes, for air raids, um, for giving weapons and other things to other countries, countries, that is money that is coming out of your pocket and your pocket and your pocket. And so that's a real another big reason why you should care about these issues and about what goes on in foreign policy, because at the end of the day, the money that gets spent in these other foreign countries is tax money and it's money that you're paying to the U.S. government. I'd rather 
have my tax money being given to other countries to make weapons to kill other people and then so I can call those other people terrorists even though they've never done anything <laughs> instead of my tax money going to helping poor people in America because poor people in America are lazy right? and black. <laughs> and I don't agree with either of those things. But guys, in case you're wondering, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem, and is your favorite person in the world, Stanley Fritz, in the studio with Selena Hill and Alyssa Fuchs, and we are on the news roundup. Favorite we're talking person in about the world. The news. Sonic, boom, your <laughs> mic is off now, Selena. And we're talking about the best news stories of the week, the things that made you laugh, cry, curse, run out the room crying again, or flip a table, or maybe you punch the air like I did when I found out about Enda freaking Anna. Indiana, guys. Oh, yes. Where they passed a law that says, Selena, once again, your folk are looking real bad out here in these streets. <laughs> oh, God. It's yes. funny because Selena's on the Christian left. That's not the same as the Christian right. Yeah, right. Right, but I still have to take that, that burden. The same way we put a lot of onus on um, Jason when he's here as yeah. our favorite black Republican. Mm-hmm. So I guess you got yeah. So my people, your folk, oh, Your folk are looking bad out here in these streets. They passed a law. That says that you are allowed to refuse to serve gay people if it is against your religion. Well, that's not exactly what the law said, but what critics are saying is that law could be used to support such discriminatory practices and acts by business owners. Mm -hmm. So here's what you should know. A lot of states have what's called this mini RIFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is obviously there's a federal version of it. We've talked about it a lot here on this show with respect to our discussions about the Hobby Lobby case last year, because if one of the big points of Hobby Lobby is it was brought under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, not under the First Amendment. That goes back to another case called uh, Employment Division versus Smith. Anyways, look that up if you're interested. I'm not going to get into the details of that. But essentially, a lot of states have also passed their own state version of this law called RIFR, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The difference is most of these state laws are written very, very narrowly that would not are not written in a way that would allow private businesses to potentially discriminate against people and in particular, gay people, uh, based on their sexuality. The problem with Indiana's law is it's written very, very broadly. And so because it's written so broadly, although it doesn't explicitly say that these businesses can discriminate, it's implied, and a lot of gay people feel, and a lot of non-gay people who care about this issue feel, that because the law is written so broadly, it will lead to a situation where businesses are granted the right to discriminate against people based on their religious beliefs, which is kind of anathema to the Constitution and how it's supposed to operate, which is like the government is not supposed to impinge on your freedom. But mm-hmm. just because you have religious freedom doesn't give you the right to impinge on other people's Yes, it does, freedoms. because Jesus. I mean, look back. This is an old, like, look back to the, in the 19th century, it was like, Help wanted, no Irish need apply. Or help wanted, you know, we have 75 jobs, but no Italians should apply. Or blacks. Then you, well, no, that's, then you're getting more into the 20th century. So then you have colored water fountain versus white water fountain, right? Mm-hmm. Like help wanted, no blacks need apply. Or you have to sit at the separate lunch counter, et cetera. And now we're just moving into the 21st century where it's the same old argument just going after a new minority group. Right. But, of course, Governor Mike Pence says, no, this bill is just to protect religious liberty 
equity, which is under attack. And I was thinking, Don't like, how is it under attack? Me. I attack religion all of the I time. I mean, besides Stanley's um, commentary. You're not the government. Yeah, like, I didn't. I? I didn't are they? I don't. So, I mean, I, I haven't read up to hear the opposing argument enough to know what that argument is. But there have been so many protests. Listen, Angie's List just canceled their entire mm. Indiana expansion. There's been three conferences canceled. There's a change.org petition asking the NCAA to move their headquarters out of Indiana. So remember, as I've said before, like when it comes to speech, there are even if you have the right to say something, there are consequences to the actions that may not be necessarily a violation of your constitutional rights. Uh, well, it's the same thing here. You know, like you have the right to practice religion, but that doesn't give you the right to not deal with the consequences from the actions you take with respect to your religion. I wish there was like a GoFundMe account where I could put money towards where they'd have somebody that would just go around slapping all the stupid people in the world <laughs> when they did things like this. And in case you want to question me on that, guys, because, you know, I'm crazy. You can give us a call at 212-650-6903. But seriously, because when I hear things like this, I want to punch people in the face. Because it's so stupid, but I can't because I don't want to go to prison. <laughs> and if I could just, like, drop $5 into someone's GoFundMe or Kickstarter account and they could do it for me, I'd support <laughs> that. Also, did you speaking of stupid people, Ben Carson called Barack Obama a psychopath. Really? Yes. No, that's not as bad as this one. This guy, Klingenschmidt, and he's a representative. <laughs> yeah, I swear to God, that's his name, Klingenschmidt. He's a representative in Colorado, and apparently he also has, like, a televangelical ter- church show. Oh, no. Anyway, so this woman, she was brutally attacked, and uh, I'm not going to get into the details of the attack because it really is just kind of disgusting and you know horrible um but suffice to say as part of the attack she lost her she was pregnant and she oh, lost and she lost the baby and Klingenschmidt said that this brutal attack on her happened because it was god's punishment for our abortion laws um that's so he really said that after yep. she lost her baby yeah, looking good yep. in the streets out here selena look do she not just me. lose her baby i mean go the, the baby was cut out of her yes. by somebody oh else. My by somebody God. else. And actually, the woman and part of this comments come because the woman who did the crime is not being charged with murder. She's only, No, because it's... Is a, she white? Well, no, it makes sense. It actually makes sense. Listen, listen, follow. This is a fetus. It's not a human. So you can't... Mur- right? And oh, that's even snap. our perspective, which is it's each person's individual choice to make the determination as yeah. to whether or not this is a fetum, fetus or a human. Yeah. So part of the, the Christian right's aggravation with this case is that the woman who committed the crime is not being charged with murder. She's yeah. only being charged with felonious... Uh, like abortion or something like that, like a felonious late-term abortion kind of thing. She's not being charged with murder under the grounds that this this fetus is not a human being. So think about that. Can I ask the question, was she white? That I don't know. And why do you ask that, Stanley? Because it had been a blackout. It would have been murder, manslaughter, attempted homicide, being black on a Tuesday. If you you accept the proposition that it wasn't a murder, that follows in line with people who are pro-choice and believing that the fetus is not a human being. You're you're absolutely right. Like, legally-wise, I want to be clear about that. You're absolutely right. It, It makes sense. I just... I just tend to believe that the law is skewed. Right. I mean, that is a horrible story. I mean, the law is skewed between white people and black people, but I don't think that's 
what's coming into play. <laughs> no, in I know situation. it's not. I know it's not. I'm but and, and for the for the elected official, the only thing he could say was that is horrible. But speaking of things that are horrible that happened this past week, mm-hmm. so Congress finally passed the Republican authored Senate, um, excuse me, budget plan, uh-huh. which does a lot of things that I don't like. Um, so there were like a hundred amendments. And eventually, like, Congress and the Senate just went, like, one by one, like, yay or nay. They just voted and they just wanted to get it done. Mm-hmm. And they passed the Senate and they passed the budget bill around 3.30 a.m. Friday. And um, so, let's see. What's in this bill that I hate? Um, Number one. It. I'm sorry. What? Ted Cruz? Oh, no. sorry. Sorry, Selena. So, Alyssa was trying to send me, send me a message. And Selena got caught in the crosshairs. Keep reading your story. No, no, no. I'd rather hear about Ted Cruz. No, you didn't even get to your news. All right, put it this way. It's the same budget as last time's budget. It, like, (laughs) cuts food stamps, cuts help for poor people, tells children, veterans, and everybody else that's struggling to go beep themselves. Reinstate slavery. And Uh then... Uh, repeals Obamacare right. and gives more money to the military. So right. there's there's the budget in a nutshell. I don't even know what the budget says. That's just what last year's budget said. No, yeah. it so does. It's basically the same budget. Yeah. It Anyways, does. Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz <laughs> is running for president, guys. And he's my favorite candidate unless Rick Santorum decides to jump into the fray because you know I love Rick Santorum as you know he's in our promo. Ben, oh, I don't like Uncle Ruckus. No. I can only, I can only take Uncle Tom black folks for so long. So, like, Don Lemon and Ben Carson can only be taken for about three minutes a day. That's unfair. No, it's not. It's, it's Don, accurate. Okay. But anyways, <laughs> I'm, not gonna, I'm not here to talk about the, the suckers of the Negro universe. We are here to talk about Ted Cruz, who is running for president. And he is such an idiot that he did not purchase his name as a domain name. Oh, so yeah, if you great. search www.tedcruz.com, guess where it takes you to? What? Healthcare.gov. No, no, that's <laughs> Ted Cruz for America. It takes you to healthcare.gov. Oh, yeah. Tedcruz.com takes you to just a black page with right writing that says, Support President Obama. Obama's immigration plan. Yeah. Whoa, that is genius. Oh, it is. That no, is genius. Ted Cruz's number one policy platform is to repeal Obamacare. Guess what just happened this week? He went on Obamacare. <laughs> yep, him and his family. <laughs> they going to love it. They got He's the exchange. Yes. They're part of the exchange now. Yes. It I, is. I mean, that's good for him. And now he'll see how great it is and how it saved so many people's lives, you know, apparently like his. And just to clarify something about that, a bunch of people have asked on my page, how could he be eligible for the exchange because open enrollment closed? Well, this is something you should just know in general. If you lose your job, if you have a baby, if somebody dies, those are considering like qualifying events in your life. So if you did not sign up for health care and then you have one of these qualifying life against events, you change jobs, you lose a job, you have a child, there's several others, then you can and are, in fact, eligible to go onto the exchange, even though open enrollment is closed. So just be aware of that if you're listening and you don't have health insurance and you might still want to get it. Like, if you qualify for a life-changing event, you still could possibly be eligible to sign up for health care. Guys, I have some ratchet news. What? It is wonderful. It's so beautiful. So... In case you guys want to call in, by the way, you can give us a call at 212-650-6903 or tweet us at BeHurt underscore radio. But a woman shot up McDonald's. Do you know why? Because why? They, they left out an extra McNugget? They didn't put enough bacon in her cheeseburger. See, that's even worse. She shot the McDonald's up for bacon. Where was this? I don't... I think it's Mississippi. Oh, my... Please tell me this is some crazy white chick. Yeah. No, it's not. It's so it was in a black neighborhood? <laughs> I, it was a black woman. But a black woman? Yeah, and she shot up the... 
You guys what? are racist. Oh, you know what? She probably got into an argument with no, one of the tellers. No, they didn't put bacon in her burger, so she came back and shot it up. Did she kill anybody or she just shot no, it in the air? No, she just like shot at windows and was screaming at yeah, people. Yeah, that's crazy. That's, oh my That's God. beyond ratchet. That's crazy, Stanley. I yeah. thought it was going to be ratchet like, oh, like someone pulls up weave yeah. out. No, no, no. So no that's I got something crazy. that's also beyond crazy because we have a First Amendment circling mm-hmm. back. Arizona State Senator Sylvia Allen says that church attendance should be mandatory for all Americans. And oh. where is she from? Arizona, because oh. nothing says separation of church and state like <laughs> mandatory <laughs> church. Wait, and these She's are the same serious. people that freak out. No, she is serious. These are the same people that freak out when you say mandatory voting. Oh, you don't want to make me go to church. I will get kicked out so fast. But I, yeah, that's true. I wouldn't want to force people to go to church. The last time I went to church, the pastor said something that was like kind of like that sounded funny, and I started laughing, and I got in trouble. He was like, "Sometimes you gotta let the Lord touch you all over," and I started Stop. laughing. Be like, "What is this? A Catholic church?" <laughs> oh, low blow. Um, speaking of crazy, well, this is actually not a crazy elected official, but. I did want to mention that Senator Harry Reid has announced his retirement and he has endorsed two people. He's endorsed um, Chuck Schumer to step up uh, for Democratic leadership in the Senate. And he's also endorsed um, a former state attorney who is a Latina woman in Nevada. And I bring this up because I want to say that more than likely um, a Latino person will a Latino official will be representing Nevada's seat because if they if this woman does run um, and the governor of Nevada right now, the Republican governor there, he's also Latino, and he won his second election, his second term, by a landslide. Mm-hmm. So it might be to uh, a Democratic and a Republican Hispanic officials um, running for this seat, which would be great because um, Nevada has a strong Hispanic community and population there. Progress. Right. So so progress, progress, progress. Shout out to Harry Reid. A lot of people don't know this, but he was the first person to approach President Barack Obama about running for president. Called him into his office and said, listen, you need to run for office now. This is the time to do it. So other people like ended up joining that discussion, like Ted Kennedy, who a lot of people know about. But it was Harry Reid who did it first. A lot of people also don't know that Harry Reid's a boxer. A very, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I know that people know he had been injured working right. out. He had a really bad injury. That's what's going on with mm-hmm. his eye right now. But he actually boxes. Yeah. And he doesn't, you wouldn't know that if you just saw him speak. I mean, he's a pretty straightforward guy. He doesn't, like, yell and scream a lot. He's not into that, like, fiery thing. He does sometimes get really passionate, mm-hmm. but, like, in a very controlled way. Mm-hmm. Um, and not the type of guy that you would think is, like, gets in the ring and boxes people, but apparently he does. Like uh, you know, and speaking of another congressman, um, this is Congressman Pete Sessions. Apparently needs some of that common core math because he doesn't know how to do any math. So he says last week that Obamacare costs $5 million per enrollee. And then he goes on to say, if you do a simple multiplication, $12 million into $108 billion, we're literally talking every single recipient of Obamacare is costing the government more than $5 million per person. Now, if you actually do the math 12 million divided into one i'm sorry 108 billion divided by 12 million equals nine thousand dollars per person not five million dollars per person so that means uh sorry congressman pete sessions was only off by uh, about four million nine hundred and ninety one thousand dollars per enrollee so um Sessions, do some math, learn how to do it. That's that new math. That's why he didn't know it. But, guys, we do have a caller on our line, one of our favorites of all time. Miss Deborah would like to let her voice be heard. Miss Deborah, go ahead. Hi, everybody. How are you? We're Listen, good. I wanted to ask you about about the the crime where the woman who uh, had her baby 
what what, what was the torn from her belly? Of her? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Yes. Uh, okay. It, so it wasn't against. It, I mean, she didn't do this. She didn't ask someone to say. She didn't ask anybody to say. Oh, will you please cut out my baby? No. I don't want the baby anymore. No. no. She was attacked. Okay, she was so attacked. That's not abortion. That's not an abortion issue. Right, right. But under under our, um, sorry, whatever state it is, Colorado state law, if somebody removes a fetus uh, from somebody else, that's considered an illegal abortion under their criminal law, regardless of whether it's an abortion issue or not. That's just how an illegal abortion is defined as a crime. Uh, I'm not 100% familiar with Colorado law. I just know that's how it's written. And from what I understand, that the woman who attacked her, is the that's what she's being charged with. Yep. So, Ms. Zabra, can you repeat yourself? In other words, you could walk. In other words, you could walk across. You could walk. You could walk in Colorado, and if someone decided that they wanted to remove your baby from your womb, that would be against your will. That would be un- considered an illegal abortion. Oh, the person who does the removing, not the not the woman. The woman who is attacked is not being charged with a crime at all. The woman right. who did the attacking, yeah, she's being she they she can't be charged with murder under the law because the law doesn't see that fetus as a human being. So in okay. order to act, so, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything because I get tired of people calling people racist. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say because that's just murder. Right, but a uh, fetus is not a human being under the law of the state. A fetus is considered not a viable human being. So right. you can't, a murder involves killing a human being. Because a fetus is not a human being, it's not a murder. So it's an assault, or, and actually it's probably a high-level felonious assault yeah. on the woman herself, and then she's being charged with an illegal abortion and, with respect to the actions that were taken against the fetus, simply because a fetus is not a human but being. But that just goes back to what Stanley was saying and how race... Comes into play yeah. because she's saying if she was uh, I would just black, be hyperbolic. Like I would just be hyperbolic. I don't necessarily think that's true. I think because I think this all turns. I mean, I listen. You can law. right. You can think that it has something to do with race and that if uh, uh, if it was some woman, if it was a white woman doing the attack versus a black woman doing the attack. I mean, I don't know, but ultimately, I don't think that has anything to do with this. Yeah, I no. think this simply has to do with the law being that a fetus is not a human being and. Ultimately, for the purposes of the pro-choice, you know, argument, that's the position that the pro-choice argument occupies, yeah, which no. is that this fetus is not a human being. Because as soon as the fetus is a human being, then abortion is murder, and that's exactly their argument for why Roe versus Wade should be overturned. Yeah, and I was just like, just being a, a bit of a jerk. Like, say something else. I yeah, I actually it. agree with Alyssa. And as much as Haney says this crime is, the minute you say that that fetus is a human, then you're looking at questioning abortion laws, which I believe that we need our abortion laws on a record because women should have a right to choose. I do want to get away from this because it's depressing as crap. So I just read in Daily News, President Obama is considering moving to New York after he's done in D.C. And the depressing part? That's not depressing. I said getting away from depressing stuff. Oh, 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 oh did you say I uh, have some more depressing stuff? No. Okay. And he wants to move to New York and oh, okay. also bring his presidential library to Columbia University. Yay. That's where he'd be moving to. Harlem? Yup. <gasps> Stop it. Barack Jaquan Hussein Obama. Is, is coming to Harlem. He's that is great so, news. So that he can get stopped and frisked when he goes down. <laughs> I, you know he would. You yep. know he would get stopped and frisked. He definitely would. They'd be like, excuse me, sir. 
You wore a shirt last night that said gangsterish. Yes. Oh, yeah. So let me tell you about that. <laughs> so last night I went to the party, right? I'll make this quick soon. Don't worry. And I had on my shirt that said Educated Negro. If, that you, if you're hates. watching the, the Ustream, stream, you can see right here on the phone. That's yeah. They the still can't see it. They still can't see it. I'll share it on our, face, on our Instagram page. Just right let's us. Hi, but, um, so pretty much what happened, I had on a shirt that said Educated Negro. And this girl at the party really liked my shirt. And she had on a shirt. It was black with a rainbow with the LGBT rainbow on it. And it says gangsterish. So I liked her shirt and she liked mine. So we switched. Oh. So the picture you see is me wearing that gangster shirt while drinking a glass of whiskey and at the party. I approve. Oh. <laughs> yeah. On that note, everybody, we have to take a quick break. But because when Selena we come back, so. we'll be talking about payday loans and about how you are getting screwed over. Yes. I think those are the things we're going to be talking about, but I don't know yet. We'll be back, guys. You wake up. As we are back, I'll let your voice be heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. You know Tina's on vacation. We miss you, Tina. We love you, girl. Get she back probably here, can't T-T. hear us, but enjoy your is listening. T.T. know it's real. And Professor Harden, as always, what's up? If you're listening... You're the real MVP. But anyways, <laughs> guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard. And if you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz, Selena Hill, and Alyssa Fuchs. We call ourselves the Big Three or the Thug Triangle. And we are now talking about payday mother-loving loans. Sometimes I sit to myself and I think, this show would be so much more fun if I could say curse words. But then <laughs> We're not it on would. HBO. Yes. And also, Professor Harden would literally kill me and give me the bill from the FCC. And I don't want to die. You know what I mean? So instead, we're not going to curse. We're going to talk about what's happening right now. And I'm going to start you off with a very, very sad story. Or if it's Selena, you might find a funny, this story funny because, of course, Selena hates me. Stop. So in 2011, I had been a year out of college and working still at my first job from graduating after graduating from college. I was making approximately 28000 a year before taxes, 17000 a year after taxes. Stop. You heard that right. Is that the funny part? No, that's, that's <laughs> just the real... You see, I told you she was going to lie. I'm just kidding. No, she's not. So, after taxes, every paycheck I was taking home about $700 every two weeks. I had, an apart- had a three-bedroom apartment with, with two really good friends. Rent was 1500 a month, so I had to pay 500 About six months into the second year of that lease in 2011, the landlord decided she wanted to raise the rent because she needed to pay for the increasing water bill because of Obamacare. That's what she said, I quote. So instead of paying 500 a month, I had to pay- now pay 600 a month. This was including... I had to pay for rent, had to pay utilities, had to pay student loans, which at the time, Sally May wanted 400 a month from me, and I had to make those payments. That... <laughs> yes, you, you know I don't like that scallywag, Sally Mae. Change her name to Navi. You still look, I can't say that. Can we say the T H O T? T. I don't think we can. All right, I'm not uh, going to um, say We're it. not sure, so yes. we'll reserve But judgment. I spelled it. You know, you guys know what I'm it talking about. It took me a while. I, but got, anyways. I don't got Sally Mae. Yeah. I got Great Lakes. You got so. Great Lakes? That's a new. I that, there's so many words I can't say right now. But, anyways, <laughs> guys, back to the story and my inability to say curse words on air because I love my life and the show. So, pretty much. Rent went up to 600 a month. Now, to you guys, that may not seem like a big deal. People would die to pay 600 a month for rent and, you know, in New York City, and I had roommates. But for me, that threw my budget out of whack. So what ended up happening for, like, the first couple of months would there be months where I didn't have enough money for food or to do laundry or, like, to do basic things like travel or get around. And I got really desperate one month, and I tried to take out a payday loan. Mm. And I remember 
because like I didn't know which ones were real or fake, and I knew you couldn't. It was illegal to have them like in stores in the city, so you could only go online for them. And I just googled payday loans, and over a hundred different companies came. Everybody wants to give you money. Yes, and I remember I went through them. They're like, oh yeah, you know, it's so great. You get the money, and you gotta, you you had them pay you back a week later. And I filled out all the paperwork, and my friend, I'm not going to put his name on blast, but he lives in Harlem now, he was like, don't do it. And he told me he owed over $7,000 in money to pay the loans from borrowing $500 OMG. six months ago. What? I mean, one in five borrowers defaults on one of these yes. loans. N- nearly two-thirds of people end up renewing a loan, and it ends up costing them 10 times more what it was when they originally took it out. Yeah, and like this is I'm 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 not like somebody who was struggling. Well, I was struggling, but like this is somebody who I followed what people told me was American dream. I went to college, got a degree, got a job right out of college. I was unemployed for one month out of graduation during the recession, which is amazing. I was very lucky, and I still could not afford to do basic things like live. And I was supposed to take out a payday loan or almost take it out. I didn't do it. I just struggled and survived off of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, Hennessy, and Frosted Flakes. That is a fact. You can ask Selena. Why were you drinking Hennessy? Yeah, why the Hennessy? Why not? You need to get on that dollar liquor. No, I'm not drinking <laughs> caveman with that dollar liquor. Alyssa? I can't believe she said it like that. Dollar. That dollar. Yo, Alyssa, we got we to gotta turn up soon. We haven't turned up I think in a I, while. Alyssa's hanging out with us too much. Yeah, but anyways. I mean, are you? This, this, is, wait, this is before us. You talking about way I ain't never saw how to act. You know, let's be out there in the Bronx chilling. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember the trap. that. Yeah, if I'm 161st <laughs> at the courthouse. Good words. We're going to get fired today, aren't we? I hope All right. not. All right. So, anyways, the story continues. I didn't check out that paid loan, and I just struggled, and my roommates helped me out when they could because none of us were rich. I was lucky enough not to. My friend eventually got the paid loans paid off by just pretty much becoming austeric on everything else. But a lot of other pe- a lot of other people go through this kind of situation, and they don't have the luck that I do or the friends that I had. And now they are crushing, they're being crushed in payday loan debt. And if you want to find out the two biggest, like, reasons for debt and bankruptcy in New York, in America, it is student loan debt and payday loan debt because people don't make enough to live and they have to borrow some money to pay back that money before they get more money. So they keep on borrowing and they keep on going down the hole, which is why I was very happy when I found out that President Obama has had begun to urge the Consumer Protection Financial Bureau to put some more restraints on payday loan lenders, which are all over the U.S., and some of them, they have them in stores. Some of them, they can't work in the state, so they have them online. So people like Stanley Fritz can go look for them on the Internet when they get desperate for money. And then, you know, and then and these people have been taking advantage of Americans all over the place. And now what he wants to do is make it harder for them to give money. They want them to ask questions like, hey, can you afford to pay this back? And if you can't, then we shouldn't give it to you. Hey, is that interest rate really that high? Should it be that high? Maybe, maybe not. And those are things he wants to do. But because I only know about my struggle and the struggle of a couple of people, we have someone on the show today, right now, on the phone, who can help us with this conversation. And he is Bendy Walsh, a business reporter at the Huffington Post who covers money and finance. And previously, he also covered Wall Street and banking for business and inside and worked at Goldman Sachs. So this is someone who definitely has a strong background in finance, knows what's going on when it comes to dollars and cents, and maybe can help us figure out why this is such a booming business of $46 billion dollars a year annually so ben thank you so much for tuning in and thank you for not falling asleep during my story wait <laughs> did you fall asleep ben? thanks for are, having me are you, you still it. there brunch drink yes yes what is your favorite brunch drink my favorite brunch drink yes uh probably just a beer you know this is probably why you're not poor like me because <laughs> <laughs> you know wait wait what kind of beer because people think that bud light is beer we all know that's water so i found that out what's your what's your brunch beer uh 
Probably like a Brooklyn Lager. Ah, nice. good man. I like that. I like I that. I usually go with the IPAs, but Brooklyn Lager is always a guaranteed good drink. Ooh, we should go on a Brooklyn Brewery tour on Saturday. Side okay. note. I will be too drunk to make it to the show the next day. I don't know if I <laughs> can promise you. might have to take you. out a payday loan. Yeah. <laughs> I actually did that in Belgium. A payday loan? No, 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 no. The, the beer tour. <laughs> yeah, so we are falling way off topic, as we can see, because the host of the segment is Stanley Fritz, and I know not how to stay on topic. But anyways, Ben, we've been talking about payday loans and how they destroy people's lives almost as badly as Sally slash Navian, a.k.a. my wife, a.k.a. the woman who will destroy my life. So, what I'd like for you to do right now is to help us to understand how payday loans have become such a juggernaut in U.S. banking. Sure. So, um, I mean, the main, the main kind of demand for them comes um, from precisely the kind of situation you described, right, where people um, get into uh, short-term cash crunches, um, for reasons that are generally outside of their control. You know, a lot of times we hear stories about people who have unexpected car repair bills or unexpected medical bills for family members, or um, maybe their job gets reduced from full-time to part-time, and then all of a sudden, you know, there goes half their income. Um, so those people um, need credit, um, but U.S. banks really... Um, don't want to lend to them. Um, and so uh, the payday lenders um, step in, and initially, you know, like you said, the deal sounds really good, right? You get, um, you get some money to bridge the gap between now and your next paycheck, um, help you pay some, some bills or get by. Um, but really, um, the kind of initial positive... Uh, appeal um, belies the fact that the interest rates are incredibly high. Um, you know, we're talking um, annualized percentage rates of three, four, five, six hundred percent, which is just insane. Um, and um, people fall into what you described, which, um, you know, reporters call that the debt trap, where you just keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing to pay off money you've already borrowed. Um, and it's really uh, pretty insane. Um, and so uh, what the CFPB is trying to do is two things, really. One, um, and this is the biggest part of it, is that there are no federal regulations right now for payday loans. It's all um, basic kind of... Um, Unregulated? Sort of cons- well, it, it's, it's covered by basic fair lending practices, oh. but then the kind of... The granular stuff is all state by state. So in some states, you know, it's basically illegal to do payday loans. Um, and in other states, it's almost completely unregulated. Um, and so even in states where it's very highly regulated, um, payday lenders go through lots of loopholes to try to evade those regulations. So they do things like um, call themselves um, mortgage providers. Um, they... Uh, will operate off of Indian reservations, will operate online, um, all sorts of things to evade state restrictions. Um, and so it's really a big deal that there's going to be a federal rule if this does, in fact, go forward. Yeah. Um, but the second big thing that you said is that um, what this rule, the proposed rule, aims to do is to make sure people can pay back these loans um, so that they don't get caught in the debt trap and just keep borrowing and keep borrowing to pay off loans they've already taken out. Um, and so that's the big news, really. 
No, definitely. That makes sense. I mean, I have just some numbers for you here uh, for the listeners. About 15% of bar- only about 15% of people who borrow money can actually repay this money uh, fully within 14 days. And after the 14 days, then they start getting hit with the fees. And when, when they looked at um, the borrowers moving from one loan to the next, they found that in three-fifths of cases that were studied, the fees that these people had to pay ha- actually exceeded the original amount of the loan. Selena? Yeah. Right. So, 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 Ben, my question is, um, so we know that the government is finally cracking down and Obama made this big speech in Alabama and I clapped and cheered and maybe some people even cried. But so how far do these regulations actually go from my understanding? They won't do anything about the ridiculously high interest rates. And all they're doing is making sure that people can pay it back, which leaves a lot of room for loopholes. It, it, it does, and that's you know one of the things that people have been critical of is that there's no interest rate cap. Um, but I think that one of the things that's interesting um, about the regulation is that it really um, gets to the heart of the problem, which is that the most abusive part of payday loans is not necessarily the interest rate that you pay over a two-week period. Um, it's the fact that most people can't pay off the loan over the two-week period, and so the interest rate then stretches out longer and longer and longer, and you're paying the loan back over a longer period of time. Um, and there are, um, you know, like um, was just mentioned, when you don't pay the back loan back on time, there are fees tacked on top of it. Um, and so one of the ways of making the fees and interest um, having them have some sort of a limit is basically saying, okay, to pay the lenders, you've got to get people to pay these loans back. Um, and so the way that I look at it is that there isn't an interest rate cap, but what the rule is, I think, pretty smartly doing is getting at a kind of de facto interest and fee cap by saying you got to get people to pay these loans back. Okay. Right. Interesting. Thank you so much for that, Ben. So, Ben, we do have to go on a quick break. When we come back, we'll be continuing this conversation. So just hold on with us for one minute, all right? Sure thing. Thank you. This is a word. Oh, and we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR. The, the voice, voice of Harlem. Harlem. And this morning, we are speaking with Ben Walsh from the Huffington Post. And if you have a question or a comment, you should give us a call at 212-650-6903. Or you can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. And if you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz, Selena Hill, and Alyssa Fuchs. And we have the home slice, the Brooklyn Lager lover. He also used to work for Goldman Sachs, payday loan whisperer. Ben Walsh. From the Huffington Post. I just want to add that in. Hi, Ben. Uh, This is Alyssa here. So here's my question for you. The CFPB has, from what I understand, proposed two different options. The first one would require the lender to confirm the borrower's ability to pay based on an analysis of the borrower's assets and financial obligations, which is similar to what a bank does now and sort of the reason why some people can't get loans from a bank. The second option would be that loans of $500 or less, uh, the 
lender would be able to skip the ability to repay assessment, but they would be required to provide an affordable repayment schedule and limit the number of loans that the borrower could take out consecutively over the course of a year so that it would stop the cycle of people taking out one loan to pay off an old loan. Are these alternative options that it's going to be one or the other? Or are these, they're saying like for loans larger than $500, it's going to be one and loans smaller than it's going to be two. And are these rules actually effective, notwithstanding the fact that there's no interest rate cap? Sure. So right now, as the rule is proposed, um, they are basically the, uh, they're uh, a sort of a choose-your-own-adventure regulatory scheme. So basically, the, the payday lender can choose which um, uh, path to follow in terms of the regulation. And they call it, you know, the, the first one you mentioned they refer to as the preventative um, scheme, and the second one is the protective one. Um, and so on the preventative side, you're required to um, look at not just how much the person, um, you know, because normally when you go into a payday loan, you just show them, here's how much I get um, every two weeks in my paycheck, um, and then they loan you money based on that. What this rule does is says, okay, you make a certain amount, but how much are you spending on rent? How much are you spending on food? Um, and then, based on your expenses and your income, makes you a loan um, that you can repay. Um, the other one is the pr- protective one. This is okay once you've already taken out a loan. It is the payday lender's responsibility to put you in a position to pay back that loan. And so, one, you can't take out. Um, more than three consecutive loans in a short period of time. And if you do take out consecutive loans, the amount that you can take out decreases. So in that sense, you know, the amount of interest and fees that you are forced to pay will drop. And, um, but right now, yeah, it is uh, up to the payday lender which, um, which kind of regulation they follow. Ben, can I? I want to tell you something. So I t- I shared my story in the beginning, and I said I needed to borrow some money. Do you know how much money I needed? No, right? uh, <laughs> I know you. I know you don't know. That was a rhetorical question. Um, two hundred dollars, and that okay. was just so I could afford to do my laundry, pay the light bill, and buy some food. penny. No, buy some. Oh, oh, oh just food. Just no, food that my time. friend, my roommate worked at a bar. We had all the free honey we wanted. Oh, okay, so that was covered. Yeah. Probably, I'll lend you two hundred dollars. Right, but that's that's all I needed. That's literally all I needed. And before I tried to apply for a penny loan, I tried to apply for a credit card and got rejected for it. Mm. Right. So why don't we just why why aren't there opportunities for people? Why like why are credit cards? Why so? Sorry about that. I had, got a little tongue tied. So I know when President Obama first came into office, one of the things that he and and um you know Congress and Senate did was put some restrictions on credit cards to make it a little bit harder for people to get them, so that you know we wouldn't have as much people going bankrupt from credit card debt. But do you think that actually hurt people who they need a little cushion, and a credit card would have helped them without without those crippling interest rates? Um, you know, it's it's tough to say. Um, there is a problem with access to credit um, for low-income people. Like, that's just, uh, that's a fact. Um, but the problem is, is that there's a demand for credit, but there's also, um, in a lot of cases, um, people who need small amounts of short-term credit are um, in situations where it's very easy for them to be taken advantage of. Um, and so um, I think one of the problems with, you know, kind of pre-approved credit cards, um, is that it puts people into the exact same 
cycles, right? So you take it, you get a credit card, um, you're pre-approved so that you can uh, spend that $200 a month that you need. Um, but then you can't pay it back immediately. The interest rate kicks in. Um, the fees for late payments or no payment kick in. Um, and you're stuck in a different but similar kind of um, uh, debt trap. Right. So, so Ben, with that said, it sounds like we're kind of leaving some of the most vulnerable Americans, people in the working class, uh, recent college grads like Stanley was at the time. They seem like they're in a catch-22 because they obviously need the money to survive or to fulfill a basic need, but you don't want them to be taken advantage of. Um, and and I, I guess the question I'm asking now is, so what's the solution? What What should we do? What should we be pushing Right. Well, I think that there's a lot of um, policies that can address um, instances when people need payday loans. So things like um, uh, Obamacare actually has been, uh, I think, uh, will prove over time to be a policy like this, right, where um, you shouldn't have a huge financial hit because someone in your family gets sick. Um, Or you shouldn't have a huge financial hit because through no fault of your own, um, you're unemployed or um, disabled and can't work. Um, so things like um, unemployment insurance, um, especially for the long-term unemployed, or um, uh, health care that is, um, you know, approaching a universal access, um, things like that can address a lot of the pain points that people find. Um, because a lot of times, you know, I think Stanley is, the case in point in, the, in this sense, um, no one says, all right, in like two months, I want to take out a payday loan, right? It's always an unexpected thing, mm-hmm. um, pretty much. And so what you can do is set up a series of other policies that can help cushion the blow when people have unexpected financial things that are negative happen in their lives. So things like um, a better uh, government health care system that covers more people, um, more robust employment protections and uh, unemployment insurance, um, uh, assistance to the elderly who are a segment of the population that are um, overwhelmingly um, or disproportionately, rather, um, affected by payday lenders. And I would add raising the minimum wage to that. But that's just that would, me. That would be a good one, too. Um, you know, I have another question for you, and this is more from the le- the borrower side than the lender side, which is how important is it for a group like CFPB to hold, let's say, for example, free webinars or free classes to educate borrowers about financial literacy and about what it means to take out these loans? And I think part of – I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is I think some of the issue obviously is the – or a big part of the issue is the lenders taking advantage of people. But I also think that part of the issue is that borrowers are not uh, literate, financially literate, in exactly how these loans operate. And part of the big thing that the CFPB has tried to done with credit cards is to make it so that credit card companies have to put out very plain language statements about things like what the interest rate is, what the borrowing limit is. How helpful would it be for the CFPB to also tackle this issue by, say, providing free online webinars or even a free class at a public school that people could come to and learn? about payday loans, how they operate, and what they're actually people are getting themselves into, or and or also have kinds of the pamphlets that credit card companies have to give out, being given out by payday lenders to explain the terms in very plain and simple forms. 
That's a really good question. You know, financial literacy is a really fascinating topic, and I think that um, what the CFPB has done with the way that credit card companies have to present their fees and interest rates is probably would be the most helpful in this situation. I think that things like, um, you know, classes at um, uh, local community centers and that kind of thing or online um, videos that explain how payday loans work, I think those are good. But I think the problem, again, is that people don't expect to take out a payday loan, and so they don't expect, they don't plan to go online and look at what the CFPB has to say about payday loans before they take one out. Um, when people evaluate these products is when they need them. And when they need them, they tend to already be in the payday lender's store um, or on the website. And so I think requiring the companies to have a very standardized, very clear um, description of their fees and um, interest rates, and I think also what's really important, a comparison of those fees and interest rates to other products that are out there, like, say, a car loan or a mortgage, um, on their website when the borrower is making the decision to borrow or not to borrow would be the most effective way. So what is what is the possibility of payday loans, us getting rid of pay, payday loans completely? Slim <laughs> um, to none. I mean, Bye. I think, um, uh, you know, it's a very big industry, and um, it is serving a need. There is a need for short-term credit. Um, and, you know, um, I think that the best thing to do is to just regulate it um, very strictly and make sure that people aren't being taken advantage of. Um, I would um, love to see uh, an industry where um, people who needed a couple hundred dollars to get by from month to month were able to access that at lines of credit that were similar to credit cards um, without the abusive policies of credit cards. Um, but the problem is, is again, that when you need that kind of money on a short-term basis, it's just, it tends to be an emergency, and you tend to not have a lot of options. Yeah. And so people make, um, a lot of times people make choices that they know are bad just to get by for the next two weeks. Selena just pointed at me when you said that. No. And you, you are, she's 100% right, though. Because oh, I, even though my friend told me that, I, I had to think long and hard. And they are persistent. You know, I had to put, mark them as spam because, like, for weeks, they were just, like, flooding my email, like, you've been pre-approved for $400. Wow. And you know what? When you're broke and, and someone's talking about giving cash. you some money, yeah. Right. Well, right. And also, um, I mean, you may or may not have noticed this, but um, what that company probably did once you filled out the application, uh, they have all your information and that information is valuable on uh, what's called the lead market of people who are looking to find people who want payday loans. Um, and so that company, um, under its terms and conditions of you filling out the application, generally can sell your information to other companies um, who can then come and approach you um, because they know your address, they know your, um, your income, um, and they can approach you with offers. Um, so there's a huge market out there of people looking and trying to find people who want to take payday loans out. 
Right. So, so Benedict Selena has a question? No, I just wanted to add that um, one of the arguments that people who are making all this money and profiting off of people's um, desperation for cash and uh, inability to pay back loans, one thing they're saying is that, you know, people need choices. And they, some people in the industry do agree that regulation is needed and they are all for common sense legislation, but they don't want that to in any way damper people's ability to make that choice. But you see, it's not and, a choice. Right, but, but this is America where you have the right to make bad choices. You have the right yeah. to, well, well, and then, and then there was this one woman mm-hmm. who I read in the New York Times who literally burst out in tears and was like, my cousin would have died for cancer if it wasn't for a payday loan. It saved her life. So, but there's something fundamentally wrong about that. It's not a choice that I had to try and borrow $200 at 100% interest so I could eat. That's not a choice that we should have to make. That's a very troubling factor in this country when people like that have to have to struggle right. in such a manner. And the fact that we're just going to let them go around all willy-nilly giving out money then asking for twice as much as they actually gave and destroying people's already messed up credit. And the people who are taking out these loans, and maybe I'm generalizing, usually they don't. It's not they don't understand the concept of credit. They don't care because in their mind, well, I'm going to be broke anyway. Right. That's how I was thinking. Like, oh, it'll mess up my credit score. Well, I'm poor and I'll always be poor, so it doesn't matter. And even the guest mentioned with respect to what Selena just said about the New York Times things, which is Ben just said, you know, if we had a more robust health care system, even something more robust than what we have now with the Affordable Care Act, then people wouldn't get hit with those bills because it would be covered. So yeah. it goes back to my thesis about everything being related to everything else. And mm-hmm. here's another one of those situations where you can see how something like healthcare and healthcare spending can be directly related to whether or not somebody may need a payday loan when yeah. it shouldn't be. People should yeah. have the health coverage that they need to not need to take a payday loan out to cover a surgery. Yeah. Was- and, and the key is like is those policies that make um, people's lives less economically precarious, right? So that you're not just one, you know, one blown transmission in your car away from bankruptcy or needing a payday loan. And the other thing I would say is about, you know, um, this, you know, that kind of argument about, you know, well, this is America and people should make choices, is that what is smart about the way the CFPB is approaching this is they're not saying payday loans can't exist. They're not saying there's an interest rate cap. They're saying, Mm -hmm. hey, as an industry, when you lend money to someone, you should either check before you lend to them that they can pay back the money which is just basic business underwriting, lending loan underwriting. They should they should be doing that anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, or once you, they already have a loan, figure out a way so that they can pay back that loan. Um, and what that is doing is saying to payday lenders, your business model has to be loaning people money and then paying it back to you, rather than your business model is loaning people money and then trapping them in a downward spiral of debt. Yeah, that's that's the and optimistic that's, that's thing. I think a very smart thing to say. Listen, if you're a lender, you should make money by people borrowing money and paying you back, not by preying on people and trapping them in a situation they can't get out of. <laughs> Talk about student loans, then, right? So, <laughs> Ben, we do have to wrap this up. Um, I'm a little bit pessimistic about debt and things like that. But please let our listeners know where they can get more of your work on Huffington Post, even though I just told them how they can get it, and where they can you know, follow you if you're on Twitter or Skolnex or whatever the kids are using now. Uh, sure. So, uh, HuffingtonPost.com backslash business. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then on Twitter, I am uh, at Ben D. Walsh. 
There we go. So, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, this is a great conversation. A little frustrating because I've been there, and I know plenty of people who who have been there and will be there again. I just want to close it out by saying, if you don't want people to be preyed upon from payday loans, then pay them. And I'm not talking about some crappy $7 an hour where you let them work 20 hours a week and cut their hours by, by half because you just don't need their help. I'm talking about pay them a living wage. And people... And out of 10 times will be okay. The reason that someone who, quote unquote, has a college degree and did things the right way has to get a payday loan is because he was getting paid a crappy wage. And we had high the high cost of living in New York and other places and expensive food and not a lot of choices. You back people into corners, it's not a choice to take out a loan. It's their only option or starve or go to crime. But we see how that goes for certain people. But guys, I'm not going to talk your ears off about this. You know what it is to pay their loans. Get educated. Keep listening. We'll be right back. And when we return, it's all about the Confederate flag. And we are back. And this is Alyssa Fuchs. And I'm here to give you the quickie. Um, and, of course, today's quickie is about a Supreme Court case. I love the legal quickies. It's my area of expertise. And hopefully I'll be able to break down this case. It's called Walker versus Sons of Confederate Veterans in a way that you can understand it and make it pretty simple to understand. Um, so the big picture issues here is, well, let me go back. The name of the case is Walker versus the Texas Division Sons of Confederate Veterans. That's the full name of the case. It was heard by the Supreme Court last week, uh, oral arguments, and eventually there will be a decision issue that will most likely come down in June. So we have two really big picture issues we have to focus on. The first one is whether Texas was wrong in rejecting a specialty vehicle license plate that displayed the Confederate flag. Now, as you know, the Confederate flag, some consider that an emblem of Southern pride, and most people, um, including everybody I think in this room, see the Confederate flag as a symbol of racism and something that's really not something we would like to see displayed. Um, on a state-issued license plate, which is sort of what's creating the issue that I'm going to get more into detail in in just a second. And the second big picture issues is how can states allow or reject politically divisive messages on license plates without violating free speech rights? So let me go back. Let me give you some background about uh, license plates, specialty license plates, and this case in general. States can and generally do generate revenue by allowing outside groups such as the Sons of Confederate Veterans, uh, the Rotary Club, the Masons. um, There's an Italian group. There's plenty of groups. They buy out space on specialty license plates. Uh, These groups pay a and then people pay a fee, a special fee, in order to put these specialty license plates on their vehicles. One of these groups is known as the Sons of Confederate Veterans. They are a group that's made up of people who descend from veterans of people, uh, veterans who fought in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. The Sons of Confederate Veterans in Texas proposed a design that would be featured on the specialty license plate, and this design was a Confederate battle flag that was surrounded by the words Sons of Confederate Veterans, eighteen. Which was the year of their founding. Uh, the flag is a blue cross inlaid with white stars over a red background, which is obviously what is known as the Confederate flag. Um, Many of us know that as the Confederate flag, and the group then sought approval by the state for this plate design. In 2010, after a series of conflicting votes, the state agency in charge of accepting or rejecting license plates rejected the proposed design. It said that uh, the state agency said they had received public comments that suggested many members of the general public found the symbol to be offensive because of the fact it was synonymous with the institution of slavery and that many regarded the flag as being associated with hatred towards groups of different people. Stanley, you want to jump in right here? Tell me 
who the blackity black blacks thank you and the blacks the texas division of the sons of confederate veterans then sued they claim that its members free speech rights were violated when the state of texas rejected the license plate because several other states had approved similar license plates ultimately the sons of confederate uh, it veterans won on their first case, um, and then there was an appeal. During the appeal, the New Orleans-based Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is, as I said, based in New Orleans, not in Texas, but it covers New Orleans, it covers Louisiana and Texas, ruled that Texas officials did not have the grounds to reject the license plate design, and they declared that the specialty plate messages were a form of private speech, and the state agency had engaged in unconstitutional viewpoint discrimination, meaning they discriminated against this license plate based simply on the viewpoint that it took, namely the Confederate flag. So there's two key legal issues at play here. The, um, the first one is whether the messages on that state-issued specialty license plate are a form of government speech. In they are a form of government speech, then officials, government officials, can decide whether or not to allow or to prevent, uh, sorry, forbid for certain things from going on that license plate. However, the second question is whether these are an endorsement of a private message. Um, an example of that is that these private messages would be representative views of the car or the truck owner themselves, not of the government. If these license plates are considered private speech, then the government's power to forbid the message is much more tightly restricted, in which case the further question would be whether or not Texas actually engaged in this thing called viewpoint discrimination, also known as rejecting the license plates because of what they say, which is their viewpoint, um, and therefore violating the First Amendment of the Constitution by not allowing sons of Confederate veterans to print the Confederate flag on the license plate. So we quickly need to look at what the law is. There's two cases that are really at play here. The first one is a 1977 ruling, which is known as Woolley versus Maynard. In the 1977 ruling, the Supreme Court treated a license plate message as a form of private speech, which is displayed on private property, namely your car. But it did not explicitly rule as to whether or not this was government speech or private speech more generally. In 2009, there was a decision known as Pleasant Grove versus the sorry Pleasant Grove City versus Suman. In that case, the court decided that the government entity has the right to speak for itself, and therefore a government authority, in which case it was a public uh, parks department, they could refuse to accept a symbolic monument for display in the park, no matter what it said, because of the fact that a display in a public park was government speech and not private speech. Currently, there is obviously now a split on whether a vanity plate is to be treated as a government speech or if it's to be treated as a private speech. And obviously, whether or not it's government speech or private speech determines essentially the outcome of this case. Because if the pleats are treated as a private form of speech, then the state's rejection of the license plate could potentially violate the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment free speech guarantee for these people to be, quote unquote, speaking by putting this symbol on their license plates. However, if the plate is treated as a form of government speech, if it's the treated as if because it's a government issue license plate, it's actually the government speaking, then like the 2009 case about the public park and the monument for display in the public park, Texas would in fact have the authority to refuse the plates. So that's kind of where we're at now. It's very hard to tell where the Supreme Court is going to come out on this issue. Based on the oral arguments, it seems that the court is very much split on this issue, um, not on whether or not it violates the First Amendment, but whether or not it's government speech or public speech. Because I think everybody can agree that saying that you can't 
publish the Confederate flag would be viewpoint discrimination. It's literally discriminating against somebody's speech based on the view that they're portraying, namely a view of racism or Southern pride, depending on who you are. I don't really think that's going to be the big issue in this case. I think if they determine that it is, in fact, private speech, they're going to say that Texas violated their First Amendment rights. If they, on the other hand, determine that this was public government speech, that a license plate is a form of government speech, then I think it's going to come out the other way and they're going to say, no, Texas was well within their right to reject these license plates. Anyways, a ruling is expected in June. This is why I'm not going to go to Texas. So let's I be feel brief. so uncomfortable around the Confederate flag already. The colorful flag, you said? No, the Confederate. Oh, let's <laughs> just be very clear, guys. In case you were wondering, the Civil War definitely happened because of slavery, not states' rights. I just want to make that very clear to people because textbooks said it, it was not because of slavery for a long time. Yeah, Depends really which textbooks you're reading. I mean, no. that's a very much a debatable point. Yeah, I mean, that I is debatable. I would definitely I would agree not. with you. I would agree with you. But even historians who study this issue and who know a lot more than we do have, you know, had this ongoing debate for a state's well, right to have slavery but we can't c- talk anymore Did because Ash Cash is actually it? next um, no because a lot of people who had a confederate flag say it's not about racism it's all it's, about slavery no it's not about slavery it's about states, states rights, and rights that right. we're supporting our confederate brothers but who the point rights. you raise is a little different which is about not about the confederate flag which is about the civil war in itself yes and I think and you think and I think Selena will agree that the civil war was about slavery yes um, but there are is a large group of people out there, and like I said, very well-studied historians that will say it was also about states' rights. Yeah, states to have slavery. Okay, guys, we will be back next week, and no, until we won't. then, it's Easter, so enjoy. It's also yeah. Passover. Yes. Uh, what do atheists have? Nothing. All right. You have the responsibility to come in and make sure you put a you show on. You can come on. to my seder. There's going to be lots of drinking do. there, uh, and it's in Brooklyn. I'm Jewish. All right, guys, we'll be back. <laughs> you don't think they really get no money, right? I mean, he ain't really from the whole, right? Well.